Good afternoon. You've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. Today, I'm so happy to have in the studio Aaron McCullough here. Aaron, welcome. Thanks. Glad to be here. <laughs> and thanks for picking the songs for today's show as well. You want to tell us a little bit about the first the first. Sure. Yeah. I, I mean, probably nothing I like more than picking mixtape type, you know, doing mixtape type things. <laughs> uh, sort of a... Uh, a creature of the high fidelity, you know, type. Uh, that is to say, when I read High Fidelity right. in 1994 or 5 or whenever it was it came out, I saw myself there. But anyway, um, <laughs> that that song is uh, Whiskey Woman by Flamin' Groovies. And um, the Flamin' Groovies are a power pop band that actually started in the late 60s. Um, uh, and that I think that song is from like '69. Actually, now um, that you say that, the sound that feels authentic to that time. Yeah, but they also they you know they sort of pioneered power pop in a lot of ways. So that in the early '70s, they were doing um, things that still found, still sound really fresh to me. But I mean, I'm a I'm a power punk power pop junkie a little bit and a power punk <laughs> that too <laughs> well in case you're just tuning in like moments moments late you are listening to living writers and even though we're talking about music right now and it's uh, no uh it's no surprise because aaron mccullough is also now i found out has been a dj a former dj mm. uh yeah. um <laughs> back where were your where your where your studio haunts aaron so I was a DJ for a couple of years in college as an undergraduate at the University of the South, Suwannee, in uh, Suwannee, Tennessee, uh, at WUTS, what's, and, uh, <laughs> and then uh, also at the, uh, at the University of Iowa. Uh, and oddly enough, I can't remember the call letters for uh, the Iowa station. Did you have special shows, Aaron, or were you... Not really. I mean, it was it was you know mixed Free format. Form or, yeah, uh-huh. um, we usually played. So in at Sewanee, we played a lot of uh, college rock. I mean, this was early nineties, right? And then that uh, was actually it seemed like the sort of the advent of that, like that where that became like the demographic to totally. be. Yeah. yeah, I mean Athens, Athens, Georgia. You know, was um, sort of at its height, or it's one of one of its plateaus, at least before Elephant Six, but post REM, and then, um, and then when I was at Iowa, it was a lot of indie rock, you know, Guided by Voices. Um, it's one of my favorite bands, and, and in fact, there's a GBV song in in the list of songs. That I... <laughs> has has to be, has, yeah, to be. has to be. Okay, well, we'll we'll get back to this this music because I feel like it might even keep surfacing. Yeah, I mean um, the the second to last book this. Uh, no grave can hold my body down as a music book in a lot of ways, you know. Yeah, because you were working off of one particular one album. Yeah, John Fahey's America, which came out in sixty. I want to say sixty-eight. Um, I, you know, came upon it in two thousand four, and fell in love with it. Sort of simultaneous with um, despairing about the two thousand and four election in the fall and um and so i was composing that book listening to the fahey album and then also the um dust to digital um box set that won a grammy uh that year uh, i have a whole story about the dust to digital box set but it, it's all these 78s that um a guy named lance ledbetter um 
and another uh, uh, you know collector a fairly old guy who'd been collecting 78s for his whole life, um, put together and then converted to CD. And so it's all these just really rare um, gospel tunes mainly. Um, Lance had a radio show, you know, at a university. Uh, and and he met this collector. They got together. They started this record label called Dust Digital. And then it was like a four or five CD set. Anyway. Um, what an incredible project. Yeah, an amazing project. And and Lance has subsequently, oddly enough, released a Fahey project. Um, oh, that's a, that is an odd overlap. And my wife grew up with Lance. And this is Suzanne Chapman. Yeah. So She grew up? She yeah, she grew up knowing, knew Lance growing up. And so the way that I came into possession of the box set was um, through Lance's father, who gave it to... Suzanne at Suzanne's father's funeral. So this is weird. We just went home for that. I came back with this box set. You know, it was obviously like an emotional period. And um, so all these things were kind of conspiring together. Uh, and then the title, No Grave Can Hold My Body Down, also has so other resonances yeah, as well. That then. song is is on that um, box set. and um, But it also, you know, there's a, there's a real sort of... Um, this sort of zombie, <laughs> this thing that, that American culture is so obsessed with for, for lots of good reasons, I think. Uh, uh, and and my idea that sort of, and it's not just my idea, it's a pr- pretty obvious leap to make, but that Christianity and, and this sort of preoccupation with, um, with a kind of uh, not a very happy resurrection um, cross, you know, cross in some interesting, or have, have some potential interesting potential for for crossover yes it seems like the the soul and ideas about maybe god and christianity and 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 definitely the soul is running Mm -hmm. through all of the books that we have on the table which um maybe let's see i will mention by reading your short bio here and then we'll go on okay aaron Mm -hmm. aaron mccullough is the author of no grave can hold my body down 2011, Little Ease, 2006, Double Venus, 2003, and Welkin, 2002. And he is currently, you've worn many hats, Aaron, (laughs) even of late, (laughs) but currently he is the editorial director of Michigan Publishing, which includes Michigan Press. Um, And most recently, you were also the librarian for English Language and Literature and for Comparative Literature at the University of Michigan's Hatcher Graduate Library. Um, you came here for grad school. <laughs> yeah. I, I fill out the bio since maybe the University of Iowa and the Iowa workshop days. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so I did a PhD here in English and taught here for a couple of years as a lecturer in the English department and then migrated into the library by some hook and crook, you know. <laughs> and was it, yeah, was that accidental then? Because that sort of has shifted your whole it's course, cha- yeah, what you thought maybe. It's definitely changed my career. Um, I'm not sure that I knew what my career path was going to be ever. Um, I knew I wanted to write poetry, and so that kind of, in some ways, resolved a lot of things for me, but also it left lots of things open-ended. I mean, I knew I was basically never going to have a career that was closely tied to what I saw as my vocation uh, or you know was not an identity with my vocation uh is it because of like how do you financially support yourself as a poet yeah yeah um so then the question was like 
well, I guess you could teach, right? <laughs> um, and I had lots of reasons for wanting to get a PhD in English, um, not least of which being my interest in writing poetry and, and a, a sense that studying poetry was a way of making poetry or that the two were kind of inextricable. And that did prove true for me that, that I was able to write a lot while I was working on my dissertation. So Yes, and I mean, as you might know, listeners, because of we have the books before us. So it's kind of it's to me, it feels super impressive. I'm holding the latest book, Underlight, um, with Ugly Duckling Press in, out in 2012. And this is the, the latest book, Underlight. But then, as we mentioned, there's four other books here, lovely books, um, meaty books, thick books, <laughs> not chat books. <laughs> and you've done all this work while mm. you were doing your PhD. You've, you've your productivity for poems um, seems incredible. Like, like, and maybe right. project, like seeing them as movements within your own life. It sounds like from what. Definitely, yeah. Um, well, so I've, I mean, there have been moments where people have sort of challenged me on being maybe a little too um, prolific, and <laughs> uh, maybe that's a bit sour grapes. <laughs> well, I mean, there are more prolific people out there, of course. And well, I always think Joyce Carol Oates as soon as yeah. you think prolific yeah. somehow. Um, and she will be writing after the grave. I'm yeah, sure. Yeah, she'll just somehow. keep on going. There will be a me- medium somewhere that will be <laughs> right, dictating uh, or. Uh, yeah, receiving the messages. Um, I yeah, I think that actually um, writing a dissertation did uh, change the way I think about um, the shape of ideas um, and projects. I mean, the, you mentioned projects, and and um, some of these books, especially like the the No Grave book, um, but also uh, Little Ease, I think um, I would call project books in a way, which is to say. I had a sense fairly early on of what the beginning, middle, and end um, were going to look like or how the pieces fit together and that there was a kind of argument there or or some kind of uh, arc to the project. And I think that um, having to think in big shapes for a long-form argument like a dissertation um, just pushed me in into the direction of thinking about long-form arguments, period. Um, so where I had uh, written, you know, individual poems um, and just sort of thought of them as poem, individual poems, uh, and then clustered them together, gathered them together as a book later, uh, I started thinking about, well, how do all of these things connect to one another? What's the organism? And and sort of it sounds like seeing that organism more clearly because sometimes, well, don't well, don't people sometimes pull poets' legs like everything's connected or so? Mm-hmm. But when you were talking about no grave can hold my body down, for example, it seems like so many forces mm-hmm. um, collided right. and it was serendipitous. Yeah, but... it was a conspiracy in, in all kinds of ways. <laughs> <laughs> and that's American too, isn't yeah, it? Yeah. <laughs> um, and and so, Aaron, with with Underlight, how did you, can you tell us a little bit about how this this one came to be this this book that you've said feels like um, like a house. This book is a house. Mm-hmm. It's my hardest book for me. Um, 
uh, it was the hardest book for me to write of the fa- fa- five? Yeah, five. Five. Yes, yes. <laughs> uh, sorry. Um, Math. It's kind of late in the day. Yeah, uh, um, it, it was the most difficult for me to get to where to a to a finished place, to a place that felt comfortable to me. And I think a lot of it is because it is a very reflective book. It's kind of a midlife book. I, I wrote it and rewrote it between the ages of maybe 37 and 40, uh, 36 and 40. Um, and um, so I was thinking a lot about um, a childhood best friend who had committed suicide and um, a lot of ghosts, you know, a lot of things that that he and I had in, endured, uh, another conspiracy <laughs> uh, uh that you know, I can go into, but it, it basically it's just some some ugliness in our childhood that um, that of course haunted us, um, and um, so uh, it was kind of meant to be a, an exorcism that, that book, um, or maybe that's not quite the right word. That's too strong. Uh, I wasn't trying to get rid of Nate's ghost, but um, to appease it, something like that. And there's something about telling the story, like having mm-hmm. it art, like uh, articulated, mm-hmm. yeah. and that others will then, because the nature of the story is, then there's receivers of the story, mm-hmm. so that it's recognized as. Yeah. So I think also, um, you know, you mentioned before that there's a kind of a religious component, or we were talking about it maybe beforehand. I mean, all of these books I see as religious or as devotional books. Uh, they're all Christian books. Um, it's a pretty strange form of Christianity, um, but <laughs> I've been reading uh, lately uh, uh, the the late Eliot, you know, um, and and it's not so different in some ways from the late Eliot. My, you know, it's I I, I think uh, a pretty um, complicated and mm, heretical Christianity, but it. Um, but one that lends itself very well to to language and and you know sort of exploring belief through language. Um, but anyway, that uh, that underlight um, there's a kind of redemption in the middle. I I of uh, no grave can hold my body down. I say there's kind of an apocalypse in the middle, and and I I think that that underlight the twist is a kind of midlife. Uh, for me, life has been the second half of life has been much better than the or the second half of the, the the life I've lived so far has been better than the first half. Childhood is not something I'm not a I'm not a um, a uh, Wordsworthian. You know, I don't <laughs> I don't look back on childhood very fondly. But I that won't uh, be the next collection. I don't think yeah. so. <laughs> the swing set and no, the no. Um, the, the but adulthood, <laughs> I like a lot. I mean, yes, okay. I, I've, I've liked being an adult. Well, let's take a short break. And when we come back, Aaron, will you read uh, from Underlight for us? Today on Living Writers, Aaron McCullough is here. His latest book, Underlight. We'll be right back.
the hands with time With all those mistakes I made Well, God is good and it's understood But he moves in a mysterious way Sought all my fault wrong, my love and rowdy friends. Fact I was getting wrecked in a motel six when he showed up in the back. So goodbye, sweet gently. Now goodbye, my Tulsa friends. Hey everybody, did you hear the news? Jesus shot me in the head. Just as well I was gone to hell I'd wasted everything Welcome back. If you're just tuning in, I'm glad you did. You've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. Um, today on the program, Aaron McCullough is here. Um, and thanks to Greg for engineering. Um, thumbs up. Double thumbs up, Greg. <laughs> um, Aaron, thanks again for picking the songs. The Oh, you know, my pleasure. You, you, you know, maybe we can twist your arm to um, when things settle down a bit at work to come and do some DJing here back at the station. I would love can... it, yeah. <laughs> um, so we, uh, when we left off uh, before the break, we were talking about Underlight, the latest book of poems of yeah. yours, out with Ugly Duckling Press. Mm-hmm. Um, and you were saying, I, I thought it was interesting, like the heretical Christianity, and those were some moments that I actually um, was struck by uh, in like the, hmm. actually maybe let's hear some of the poems and we'll talk about it afterwards. Let's let everyone hear one of the underlight poems. Okay. Um, This one is called Sulfur and it's from a section in the book called Preliminary Notes. So it's early in the book. And and it's, these these poems were meant to be kind of voiced by um, this ghost, of a friend uh, named Nathan. Sulfur. Is there a badness in you like a pruned branch? That's tough. Think of the soul in bigger, rougher shapes. Rough soul. The hawk wants a mate, so does the man, the lion, says the beast. This is one way to self it out. Messias can mean measured, always found wanting quell, to kill, or well out like water. We feel something divine most under gravity and say, yes, whatever you require. This was the window shade drawn. That was an open one. The burden of responsibility for your desire almost becomes my own. I do adore the flaws near-fitting, Narcissus blistering the surface. The record is complicated enough to include sacraments of abuse, but no one says so. Lord, make me large so I can see you in your smallness, barking like crazy at the threshold. Thanks, Aaron. Yeah. So those last, those last few lines then, actually, that feels to me like, I was like, oh, <laughs> when I read that. Um this idea of the the lar- the the largeness making you able to see uh, his smallness like so that that idea of um, let's see um, Lord so this address Lord make me large so I can see you in your smallness mm. which is that that's a big thing to say uh-huh. um, <laughs> and then 
what I loved also was the this final line. That's why I realized that I couldn't talk with you about the poem until you'd read it because I didn't want to ruin the barking like crazy at the threshold where somehow there's the the image is surprising um of in this anyway this image of a dog or mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. which is a or a person or a soul or so um all on the outside but it but I don't know. So it's just this in- interesting things happen in the last, like those th- two lines there. Yeah, good. <laughs> I'm glad. <laughs> glad you think so. Uh, that it felt interesting to me. Um, you know, I mean, one of the things about writing for me is um, wanting to be interested by the language itself, which is to say, um, I try to keep a, a kind of orientation to the language that is not overly controlling or overdetermined. Um, I like the language. I, I try to l- keep a loose grip on the language in some ways or a, a kind of um, a gentle handle on it so that it can do things um, that surprise me. And um, and so there, there are a few moves, I guess, is one way of talking about it. There are a few moves in there that I didn't anticipate um, but that ended up feeling right to me. Um, and so, I mean, if asked to sort of uh, provide an exegesis for it, it's it's a little hard for me to do. But yes. um, but it but it feels true to me, sort of tonally, and it feels true to me in other ways too. I mean, I could I could pin it down and say this is what I think that means, but almost deconstruct it backwards, mm-hmm. right? Like not as if you were building it forward, but it's it's there. I think the moment that you're talking about, Aaron, that's when I think you know. It's a poem. For me, that's true, definitely, yeah. And so it's not like you can really talk about it, which sounds wooey or, so, or so a little I mean, bit I'd like... I'd rather uh, somebody else... I mean, yes, you know, it's, yes, it's, it's yeah. a sort of narcissistic <laughs> thing or a, a, a um, fanciful thing to, to expect. But but if, if, if it's going to be talked about, I'd rather somebody else... Uh, talked about what it what it did for them or to them. Well, because it's out in the world now. Yeah, yeah. And that's your purpose for it. Mm-hmm. Um, but to me, it felt more like it, uh, all of this work does feel very much like a, a form of prayer. And, and so, so sometimes prayer is, is very sort of, um, much about, um, chanting or droning or, you know, like it's, it's sonic content that doesn't necessarily have a clear referent or a clear, um, a direct, um, there isn't a message that's that's crystal clear. Sometimes that's the way poetry feels to me as I'm producing it, um, and that's a very different relationship to to language than what I was trained um, to uh, to revere, especially in the early days at a place like Sewanee, uh, where uh, formalism is really um, prized and valued most. Um, what I'm doing now. Uh, is really kind of contrary to what I was trained to to value, or told to value. It's <laughs> probably a better way to put it. Well, and I, and it's and, and of course it seems like that comes through in your books too, because you you have published in this trajectory mm-hmm. where over a over a decade, like and a half mm-hmm. or so, right? Yeah. So you, weird to say, but yeah. So then you would be able to see somehow you're working with some forms or you're mm-hmm. working or with this attention to some formalism or these other influences. I'd, I'd say, in fact, all the books are extremely formal, but um, 
you know, I'm very conscious of um, an iambic line. I mean, my line is a pretty iambic line, um, but um, but it's the way that the content works is is really um, in a in a struggle with the formal. Uh, hmm. You know the, the 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 sort of pleasing or or, or um, <laughs> the comfortable formal uh, rhythms. Well, and especially for a book like Underlight, and probably No Grave Can Hold My Body Down as well too. But that's that's critical then mm-hmm. for what's happening in the the life of this book. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's there are a lot of things I can say about that, but there's a sort of bedrock, a, a kind of weird conservative bedrock to me, and that. That is, you know, the formal formalism in my books, or the 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 idea that I would even say I'm a Christian. Um, but on the other hand, it's like uh, I'm fighting against that conservatism or or challenging my own conservatism constantly. Um, so I'm 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 torn in in a couple of different directions. It doesn't feel like it doesn't feel like a tearing um, experience, but it's a it's a strange um, mix of things um, to have. It seems so, at least. You know, I I don't know a lot of other poets who identify. <laughs> a lot of my other poet poet friends don't identify as Christians, um, but it's important to me. Um, and then a lot of Christians I know wouldn't identify me as a Christian, so that's also a funny thing. You know. Yeah. Hence, hence the struggle. Yeah. Yeah, and which is also I think makes these poems live then more and. Yeah, um, I think that, you know, one of the things we learn early, early, early in literature classes is that there has to be some kind of tension um, in a story or whatever for it to have any power. Well, poetry is often driven by a kind of individual, you know, subject, uh, especially lyric poetry. And the tension is interior to my subjectivity, I suppose, but but it plays out in, in a lot of sort of uh, or a handful of ways that that get modulated, you know. But I think you can sort of see it appearing again and again and again. Some basic tensions. Earlier, you mentioned that this is. It feels like Underlight is like a book of of prayer. These poems are prayers, mm-hmm. and and also that the notes, um, the first sections, um, preliminary notes. Excuse me, preliminary notes is actually. Nate's voice. Mm. So what is it like then? Is that another tension then to give the prayer to someone else's voice? Yeah. uh, The funny thing, I mean, I don't know if I've ever, uh, you may be the first person other than one of my close friends who I shared this manuscript with and who I worked with on it a lot um, named Arda Collins. She's sort of the person that I, that I share my work with and, you know, get feedback from the most um i think you know i haven't talked a lot about the idea that this is another voice but i kind of feel like uh nate nate's voice is in the house of my body um so so i'm sort of speaking for him i mean okay and this book is sort of an extension of that because you feel like this is a book that's like in a way closest to you yeah there are a lot of sort of nested domestic um shapes here so that you know 
that the book, of course, is always kind of a, a metaphor for the house, or the house is always a metaphor for the book. The body is always a metaphor for the house, and, and <laughs> you know that kind of thing. Um, but it's still powerful to say, like we can say, yeah. "Oh, we understand, we recognize that." But, right. But when it's your own feeling about it, mm-hmm. so um, so there's a weird way in which when I was starting to work on this book, I mean, part of the thing that was compelling me to work on this book was I was feeling kind of like the, the house of my body, if you, if you will tolerate that metaphor, was being haunted by Nate. Um, I was having a lot of dreams about him and, and sort of waking up thinking like, what, why do I keep having these dreams where Nate is very unhappy and seems to want something? And it seems, you know, it seems silly to, to say, uh, I have a ghost who wants something from me but it did feel like it and I just I just embraced it and I wrote these poems so that he could say what he needed to say is what it felt like to me well well let's take a short break and then when we come back would you mind reading another from Underlight, Aaron um today on Living Writers Aaron McCullough is here his latest book of poems Underlight we'll be right back Sideways I slide through the square I'm hoping so hard for a kiss from God I miss the sweet love of the air A silver chariot so
Welcome back. You've got Living Writers on WCBN FM Ann Arbor. I'm T. Hetzel. Today on Living Writers, Erin McCullough is here. Um, And with poems, poems galore. We've got five books of Erin's on the table. Plus, Erin's got his laptop with new work here. Um, Greg is playing the fabulous songs (laughs) that Erin has picked and, um, and, and making it sound good. Thank you. Again, Greg, for engineering. And um, thanks to all you out there listening. Um, So we're back. And we were talking um, when we left off at the break about Underlight. And and I I wanted to say that what's also interesting about uh, the poem you you just read for us, Aaron, um, Sulphur, was that the rough soul, Mm -hmm. that that phrase surfaced there. Mm -hmm. And that was going to that was the working title of Underlight at that's one right. point. <laughs> that's funny that you know that. Um, I mean, I guess it's out there on the web and stuff. That's right? the only re- yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, it was for years. Um, in fact, uh, it was the title, which you know people would sort of. I, I got advice back and forth on that. You know, like that eh, seems like kind of a heavy-handed title, or what does it mean? And uh, I always. I did always associate it with rough, uh, or sorry, with uh, rubber soul. Oh, although, yeah. <laughs> although I don't know, wh- you know, like what the connection between this and rubber soul is. There's not much. Well, there's an R. <laughs> yeah, and I love rubber soul, but um, but uh, yeah, and you know, the soul in here is not is not the sort of soul of of rock and roll or or soul music or whatever. I don't guess, but um, but the idea of a sort of a body. The, I've tried to describe this before, but this sense that the body and the soul um, overlap, but they don't fit together perfectly. And so um, the place where they, you know, where the sort of the soul either, um, you know, uh, goes past the limit of the body or or where the body kind of impinges on the soul, that's the sort of rough place. Those are the rough places. Um, or... Or this, you know, this idea of a kind of um, an exposed soul in a way that, you know, that there's some there's some spots in the protective coating of mm-hmm. the body that have rubbed away, and and that's a, you know, that the jagged the jagged vulnerable soul is sort of just there un- underneath. How did you make decide then to choose Underlight, um, which is is a it's a poem, so there's a poem titled Underlight in the mm-hmm. in the book. Um, how did how did you decide to go choose that instead of the rough soul? What persuaded you? You know, actually, my editor um, suggested that I change the title to Underlight. Um, and I that mean, I felt right. To, it did. To, I, you know, it, I think maybe it, there, I, there had been a point where I had considered um, some some version of that as a title. Um, you know something and underlight or oh, right. you know like i didn't want to just have underlight i don't know why even though yeah as you said there there is uh, you know, sort of multiple poems called underlight in there um and i had coined that or i thought at least thought of myself as having coined this sort of word this yes. one word underlight and it it felt very very right to me as a it's an almost paul salon kind of uh kind of Oh. Word, uh, you know, he has this, like breath turn and those weird compound words. Um, I love him. I do too. Yeah, uh, and you know, someone who um, I I was reading at an early part of the the com- composition of this book. So 
it, it wouldn't be too surprising to me if that impulse or that uh, influence was kind of creeping through someone there. else's music and mm-hmm. becomes part of yours. Yeah. I mean, of course, I'm reading them in translation, so I don't really. Right. Oh, no. that's true. I know. Always oh. our that's the. <laughs> and he's sort of notoriously impossible to translate. Um, and again, I don't know if that's true or not, but um, <laughs> but the translations I've read have you know been things that I love and that I find very moving. <clears throat> so, um, but this this sense of um, light that is coming from underneath something else um, that's you know uh, a kind of hidden light or um, um, in the you know in the understory of of the of a forest or you know underneath underneath the water or these. A lot of those things, you you see, you know, I, <clears throat> there's this place um, in near Chattanooga where I grew up called um, the Lost Sea, and it's this like underground lake basically, and you can go down there and um, and rent a boat ride, and there are these sort of um, these fish that don't have any um, coloration. Any or, oh, do they, they have eyes? Well, I think they're oh. blind. You know, it's one of those. One of those uh, subterranean <laughs> existences, um, and but then there are also lights, you know, or like lights underneath the water in a pool, where there's just that weird effect, right? Of, um, a sort of distortion, and it, and it, it is eerie. Seems like it shouldn't be. There shouldn't be light down there, because <laughs> there wouldn't be if right. we hadn't gone down there, right, yeah. with the lights, right? So yeah, so something about sort of um, what. Uh, John Donne would call, you know, sublunary existence, um, life underneath the moon, you know, yeah. life on earth, that, um, that, that the light down here is somehow different from, um, <laughs> you know, the light of you know, the heavens or, um, that, that all felt right to me. Um, so, um, in some ways it seemed like a better title. And it's interesting to hear you speak about this with, it feels like the light that maybe each of us, when we are walking around in the world, we're in our own underlight, mm-hmm. to use your word, yeah. <laughs> um, but where that's, and, and it's vis- visible or not to others, but it's sort of, it's part of that, how we see the world even, or what perceive it, or even probably biologically and physically how it our eyes are interacting yeah. <laughs> with perceiving the world. Well, it's a very limited light in a way. I mean, we can only see so far. We can only see certain things. You know, we have a lot of blindness and um, even in the full light of day, of course, we still have all these misconceptions about what we're seeing, even if, you know, and not just seeing with our senses, but also seeing kind of in the, in the, um, how our the mind realm works. of thought. Or, yeah. yeah. Um, and so, you know, we have these mis- all these misperceptions about ourselves and about others and, and what has happened to us and what it means and that kind of thing. Um, and so, yeah, this, this like imperfect or partial light, um, was, was a big part of what, um, I think it was attractive to me about that uh, as a title. Would you mind reading one of, what, oh, another sure. poem from sure. the, the book? I can read one of the underlight title poems if you, if you like, um. Let's see. Um... And while you're looking, Aaron, the book itself is just—it's. I, I mean, all your books look look great here out on the table and visually like nice, nice design. But this book somehow—it's my favorite. I even I brought it to show um, 
my friend poet Lizzie Hutton and mm-hmm. she was like oh that does look nice and Michael Dickman had a copy mm-hmm. and he when he showed me I was like that's some book like it just it's mm-hmm. and it feels right for even how we're how now I know the book is working and mm-hmm. what it is well yeah so the ugly duckling folks are really amazing and um they you know they I mean this in a in a purely positive way, but they fetishize the book as an object, and they really do make these beautiful objects. Um, and it's a mixture of kind of contemporary technology and more traditional technology. They do a lot of letterpress printing, and yes. um, and um, Linda Trimbath, who was my editor and who designed the book, designed the cover, laid it out, all that stuff. Um, you know, she she just did a great job, and and I, I think that. The handwork of it is is really um, what you're responding to, and it is. I love it too. You know, I I was so thrilled when um, she contacted me and and told me that she was interested in doing this book. It was you know a real highlight in my life. So not an underlight. No, no, okay. it was well, a no. full light. It was yeah. full light. <laughs> uh, so you want me to read? That would be wonderful. Okay. Thank you. So this poem's called Underlight. Whatever happens in increments, the coffee ring in the corner of this page, dimmer than the last, happens as premonition and anamnesis, like everything. No surprise, I think I smell a fugue coming on those golden numbers, more like church bells. So hard at work, not minding the gap, it feels like revelation to fall in bed and worry about infinity, adjacency how much you will miss loving the person beside you in increments, how much you are missing, I mean, and will be once stepped out of. Try to seize the day you hold hands with yourself, one hand grasping, and yet there is a sound beside yourself with worry. You see the night seizes you, the radio repeats the news and repeats it, a car hisses over the wet street, the sheets soft. It isn't comforting to be alive. Thank it's you. Sort of bleak poem, <laughs> <laughs> but not totally. It's I mean. not, no, no. And and I was going to say, um, it's one of your radio poems. Is that right? Oh, well, right. Yeah, you I mentioned a, the radio. A direct shout out to yeah. the to the radio. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, and I, I think it's so. Uh, what part of that underlight poem that stays with me is the 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 part with the co- it feels so present, like with the 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 narrator where the coffee you can see the rings on subsequent pages, like the if there's such a moment that's ah just right to to um, to lead that off that poem. But um, anyway, underlight. That's so. I'll tell you what. Why don't we take a another short break um and then we'll come back and talk a little bit more about all your work this 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 is sort of flown by so <laughs> we'll try to fit a bit more in okay um today on living writers with aaron mccullough we'll be right back i felt like to Behind a text cold day 
Welcome back. You've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. Today on the program, Aaron McCullough is here. Um, we've got, we've been talking about his latest um, collection of poems, Underlight, out with Un- uh, Ugly Duckling Press. Um, and then we also have on the table, No Grave Can Hold My Body Down, Little Ease, Double Venus, and then the first book, Welkin, um, which was winner of the Sawtooth Prize in Poetry for 2002. Um I don't know, Aaron. How do we? How do? How what do is it like to see? This? Yeah, what is it like to see them all out here? And then also to know that you've got the new poems mm. also on the computer there. <laughs> well, um, you know, it's funny. When I was younger, um, the idea of publishing a book was something that you know I really wanted to do, and I, I think I probably had an unrealistic sense of how. Um, doable that was, um, but no, not by looking at it now. Well, no, I mean, but it's it's funny that when it came time to actually try to publish my first book, I, I came to understand how difficult it actually is. Um, and then when it did happen, I was just, I mean, happy and in, in the way that I is hard to describe. You know, 
Um, and that's happened every time I've gotten a, a book accepted for publication. And so, um, so I'm, I mean, I basically, I guess I, I'm just really grateful. Um, I mean, to look at these books, I'm really grateful that they exist. I feel really lucky. I mean, that, that's, um, I'm proud of these books, but, but I also, um, I just feel like I could have just as easily written all these books and had none of them published. And, um, and that would be okay too. Um, but I'm really lucky that, that it turned out this way. Because it's the writing of the poems and it's not as if you would be, um, like if they weren't, if things weren't going out in the world, you'd still be making them. That's probably true. Um, I, you know, recorded songs and made, you know, made tapes uh, on well, the four saw, track. I saw your air guitar earlier. Do you yeah, mean music? I've got, or a, I've got a mean <laughs> air guitar. Um, yeah, yeah, uh, music, right. So I, you know, in the 90s when uh, it became okay again to do it yourself, you know, like a sort of another wave of punk uh, do-it-yourself um, ethos passed through guided by voices as we were discussing before um i just sat down with a four track and started making pop songs and you know trying to be brian williams or sorry brian Wilson? Williams. <laughs> no brian williams the newscaster um he yeah. is so flattered right now hello brian out there <laughs> no but brian wilson correct uh yeah trying to make pet sounds you know and um uh it did not. I knew no one wanted to hear those songs, and that that was fine. I was making them for myself. Um, and there's a way in which writing poems is is the same. I mean, I think that um, the two things reinforced one another. And the fact that I stopped recording songs. I mean, there there did come a time in my life where I just had too many other things going on. I had to make a choice about something to give up, and recording songs was something that I chose to to give up. I mean, I might go back to it at some point. I still play guitar and, and stuff, but I I was never that great at it. Um, I loved doing it. Um, but I always thought of myself as a poet. And, and so, but there was something empowering about the fact that I could just sit in my little home studio. Mm-hmm. Um, and that when I did have songs to play for my friends, they liked them. You know, that was, yeah. that made me feel great. And, and I, I always kind of, um, I always romanticized the idea of of the the artist kind of squirreled away somewhere doing work just for the sake of it, um, and I still do. I, sometimes I think you know, if everything else falls apart, I can still sit in the corner and write poems. I have this weird memory from very early on in my life. I don't know when I was real fascinated, as a lot of kids, boys probably especially are, by war and the Vietnam War in particular. And I remember seeing reading somewhere about a Viet Cong soldier who was found dead, but who had these poems that he'd written in his pocket. And I think about that probably once a month, this sort of anonymous soldier writing poems on the battlefield, you know, like, um, do you have any poems in your pocket right now, Aaron? <laughs> I don't, I don't. I think we should start just carrying yeah, maybe them around. That's, you maybe that's know. my next publication medium. Um, <laughs> well, well I mean, don't go walking in front of any traffic or yeah. anything, but, but not bullets. to make light of that, because that story is actually, that's that's an amazing story. Mm-hmm. I mean, the things about it that stuck with me were the, you know, the idea that in the in the midst of sort of the chaos of, of, a, of a situation like a war, that um, that there are some people 
who um, feel compelled to write poems, right? And and that's not the same as, for example, you know, Wilfred Owen writing poems about World War One after the fact. Right. This is someone in the yeah. bat in the heat of battle, sort of, um, you know, th- that feels compelled to write poems. And I think um, that's. I, you know, I'm not in the heat of battle, but I have a hectic day, and I I still want to write poems, and and the and the two things sort of fit together. Like po- writing poetry is part of what makes the other thing not just survivable, but like this is why I'm here. Right. Um, you know, I'm not here to kill people <laughs> um, or <laughs> knock on wood. <laughs> you know, to fight um, right. to fight battles, and I'd prefer that you know nobody else were to either. Um, uh, and I, I, I sort of had this romantic notion of that person, or this idea of who that person was. Who is this person who feels compelled to carry a, a weapon, or you know, is forced into a situation by an imperial uh, superpower um, to to take up arms, but is also like, you know, really just a person who wants to make art. Um, I, I feel like that's one of those stories where you can really say like poems are going to be in the world. Like you know how people are like. Poems are, I don't know, it's the end days for poems sometimes. I feel like it can't be. Like hearing a story like that, it just, some people will always be making them, whether they're widely distributed. But now with the, you know, the internet, et cetera, like that seems like they can be distributed. Like, like what do you think about, this is a total jump, but then self-publishing, you're talking about making the like Mm -hmm. music on your four track. What do you think about when people have a group of, of poems and they're, like I wonder, what do you think about that? As people putting more of I think those, it's great. So, I, you know, I mean, I think, um, you know, I I have published with publishers, and that's been important to me. It was something I've, you know, in a way, um, I was probably snobby about about self publishing at some point in my life. Um, at this point, I'm not. Um, Although you are, we should remind everyone the the editor, editor yeah. of the Michigan Press. <laughs> so, right. I mean, it is, but you're also someone who has, you know, a knowledge of sort of the the digital scape mm-hmm. when it comes to poems now and and. Yeah, I mean, I guess I the way I would like to frame it is there, there's this whole you you had mentioned that, that there's this sort of sense that like poetry maybe going away or losing its kind of cultural capital or something like that. And um, there's a broader sense that the humanities in general are, you know, at risk. And I think that that's true um, from a certain perspective. That is to say, like, within the academy, in the university, um, the humanities are getting less and less um, attention or they have less and less kind of muscle. Well, because of the business model or so. Yeah, and the sciences... um, are valued for lots of good reasons, of course, um, and lots of not so good reasons. Um, but I think I have a tendency to get overly concerned about what's happening in the academy as opposed to just what's happening in the world. And um, and so if the humanities suffer in the academy, that doesn't necessarily mean that the humanities suffer you know, across the board. And I think that, in fact... We may be just going through a, a period where the sort of institutionalized arts um, are fading. That usually historically is a good thing. Um, you know, when the the academy, the painting academies uh, over the centuries are not the places where the best work has, you know, right. come from. And so usually that's where a sort of 
a repetitive and kind of um, fixed habitual um, thing happens. So um, although, you know, from a professional standpoint, uh, the, the, the vulnerability of the humanities is, is a stressful thing for me. Um, when I think about the, the bigger, um, sort of more idealistic questions about the humanities and poetry, I'm not concerned at all. I think that you know, as long as there are human beings, there's going to be music and poetry, and um, you don't need money to do it. And that's one of the things that that's why it's great. You, know? <laughs> <laughs> you need money to you know to get someone to publish your book, but you don't need to have a book to have poems. Um, yeah. So uh, it's easy for me to say that all of those things. Of course, um, I've published books. And it's, you know, I've gotten to this point where I'm not anxious about it anymore. I'm like, well, I did what I wanted to do. And if I die right now, uh, well, I've made work in this world that I'm happy about. Um, <laughs> but that's no small thing. But it's, a, you know, I have a I have a, I'm a perspective, I guess, uh, on this question that I'm really glad I've been able to reach. And in the future, if I never publish a book again, even though I'm working on books, that's okay, and I'll keep writing them and sharing them with my friends, you know, just like mixtapes. <laughs> well, I love that. And there is one book that's not on the table that we that, that you edited, that mm -hmm. you put together on the, the Gullah of South Carolina, is mm -hmm. it? And just just this was a project where, could you tell us a little bit about, because like, you listen to the voices of tapes of archives from the WPA or... Or just briefly, because we don't have a lot of time, but sure. I thought this was an interesting, another, how episode. did you work this into your, yeah, <laughs> the work you're doing? Yeah, well, it was a, a major episode in my early adulthood. Right after I graduated from college, a friend of mine who I'd helped work on his um, undergraduate thesis on the Gullah of South Carolina uh, approached me and said that he really wanted to extend that project. And, you know, I thought, wow, that's. I'm happy to help with that. This is not going to go anywhere, you know. I mean, like, it just seemed like any other project that, you know, more likely not to go anywhere than to go somewhere. Um, but then 15 years later, we had this book that the University of South Carolina published. Um, the project, it was one of these projects that sort of was waiting there to be done. And, and for me, I was just sort of stumbled into it. And my friend Kincaid, who was really the driving force, um, he had... Um, there were all kinds of reasons why he was connected to the to the um, the place uh, Merle's Inlet, South Carolina, which is um, just up from Myrtle Beach, and is you know this small community that is mainly Gullah speakers, and Gullah is a African American language. It's you know some people would call it a dialect, but it's a um, it's actually linguistically speaking, it's a, a language with its own integrity. But it um, it has a mixture of um, African syntax and or like syntax from a number of African languages and also vocabulary from a number of African languages but then um, also a lot of uh, English vocabulary um, but it was a it was a kind of um, a pigeon that um, slaves um, uh, developed in South Carolina on on the plantations to be able to understand one another um, and not be understood essentially by the masters. And um, what an what an incredible project to be part of. It, it seems to me like and to well, stay changed with my, changed my whole perception of language. Of course, you know, like I hadn't at twenty 
25 or whatever I was, 24, when I started working on that. I hadn't thought about code switching at all and what, what, what you know, language, the way that language could be used to sort of communicate and also obfuscate. And that, I think, for, as a poet, became this, like, really fascinating and um, eye-opening um, thing to, to be immersed in. Oh. Um, and and it seems to me like these these pieces like and for fifteen years you stayed with it so mm. there's there's something it's interesting like you I I think you're saying like there's these um, projects that you're running running with and that are ongoing and that you stay with like for fifteen years and then you have these books well, that and you're I making say, and do it yourself and or, yeah. well, there's always a do it yourself element certainly <laughs> but the, the other element that I should say is there is um, love for another person um, and so. My friend Kincaid was a big part of the reason that I stuck with that because I loved Kincaid and it was a project that I wanted to help him see to fulfillment. Erin um, McCullough, you are wonderful. Thank you so much <laughs> for being on Living Writers today. Thanks for having me. Come back again. You, I'd love to. You've been listening to Living Writers, Erin McCullough's latest book, Underlight. I'm T. Hetzel. Until next time. One, two, three. You are listening to WCBN-FM, and right now, I want you to get ready because it's time for the Drive Time Polka Party! (laughs) 